Uh, well, as a way uh, into our text this morning, uh, I want to talk to you briefly about uh, another book, not the Bible, a lesser book, uh, clearly. Uh, this book is an advice book. Uh, in fact, it is uh, one of the most popular advice books of all time. Uh, USA Today has uh, a list of the 25 most influential books of the last 25 years. This book is on that list. It sold over 14 million copies. Uh, nine out of 10 people that are interested in this topic that it's written about have read this book. So it's very widely read. In fact, um, I, I bet many people here in this room have read this book. Uh, so here's your hint in terms of what this book is. It has been called the American Bible of Pregnancy. You know which book it is? It's this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Remember this book? <clears throat> Don and I received it. We, it passed around. This is uh, one of the older versions. There's like 15 different versions of it now. So this book was written by Heidi Murkoff and some other people. Uh, 1984, as you can tell by the cover, uh, is when it was written. She put it together because when she was pregnant for the first time, she was looking for some sort of resource that would just kind of tell her what, what to expect, what's going to happen month to month. And so that's how she organized the book. Every chapter is a different month of pregnancy, and the whole point is to be very practical, comprehensive. It's got everything in there, body changes, what equipment to get, what to be worried about, a little section for dads, because they're so nervous about everything. Uh, so the success of the book really is in, in the title, right? For new mothers especially, uh, it's comforting. There's so many unknowns. It's comforting for, to have someone say, look, here's what to expect, and then here's how to respond. And the reason that book came into my mind is that I really think, uh, in many ways, that's what Peter has been doing throughout the letter of 1 Peter. He's writing to the churches in Asia. Many of them are new believers, and he's basically writing them to help them understand, look, here's what you should expect on the road of faith, and then here's how you should respond. And it's very helpful and comforting because as an apostle of the church, he can sort of let them know what, what's going to be coming, and that's, that's what he's been telling us about. Our text this morning, though, is, is very much in this fashion, that he's going to be explaining to us, uh, if you're a Christian here this morning, what, what is something else that you should expect, and then how you should respond to it. So, without further ado, here's our text this morning, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's God's word to us this morning. And if you were to ask the question then, so what should I expect my life to be like uh, as a Christian, uh, I think this would be the clear answer from our text. Uh, we should expect to suffer for doing good. We should expect to suffer for doing good. Uh, I say that because it's in there twice. Once at the beginning, once at the end. Verse 14, Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed and verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. See, it's important for us to have this settled in our hearts, this expectation of suffering. But notice 
not just suffering, Peter's already written about that, but suffering for doing good. Uh, That's a bit different. And it might be surprising. We might think to ourselves, you know, if, if I'm living a good life, if I'm being generous and kind and gracious, then I should have less trouble, shouldn't I? I mean, who's going to give me a hard time if I'm being nice to everyone, if I'm being kind, if I'm, you know, positive all the time and, and try to bless others all the time? Well, the answer uh, apparently is that lots of people are going to give us trouble, that there is going to be greater suffering at times. So why is that? Why is it that we should expect to have suffering if we are doing good to the people around us? And the answer is, frankly, that sinful humanity does not tend to look kindly upon do-gooders, is maybe the way to say it. Uh, Look at how uh, John says it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, speaking about just the nature of human beings, it says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So as Christians, we are, we are people uh, of the light. Uh, Jesus, the light, has come into the world. We, by the power of God, not because we're amazing, by the power of God have seen the value of the light turned from darkness, and now we are to be a light in the world. We're to shine this, this gospel light uh, into the lives of the people around us. And there tend to be two responses. Some people are drawn out of the darkness into the light, just like we were. They, they see the light. God opens their eyes, opens their heart. They see the value that they come. They come to faith. They then become people of the light. But there are others who reject the light, who embrace the darkness even more. They are the ones who can make us suffer because they aren't intrigued by the light. They aren't interested in the light. Uh, They want to extinguish it. Makes them feel better about themselves when they put people of the light down, when they try try to hide our light. In fact, you may be able to think of times in your life when someone has made your life more difficult because of you living out your faith in some way. Because of of you trying to be kind or gracious or, or live out biblical principles. That's to be expected, is what Peter is saying. And so the next question then is, well, what do we, what do we do in those situations? How should we respond when we are experiencing suffering and hardships because we are doing good? And Peter gives three instructions, three practical instructions, not just of what to expect, but now how do we, how do we respond? So here's the first one. We should uh, respond uh, by not fearing. Okay? Do not fear is a clear uh, command here in the text. Do not fear. We find it in verses 14 and 15. I'll read it again. Um, now, who is there to harm you? He says, if you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, meaning have no fear of the one who is bringing this difficulty into your life. Now, I think we know this is a lot, it's a lot easier to say this than to actually do it. Uh, In fact, this is uh, the opposite of what our natural response is in times of of suffering, in times of hardship. Uh, Our our natural response is to fear, is to worry, is to be anxious. 
I think I've shared this uh, before, but uh, there's, there's only been a couple of times in my life when I would say that I've had a, a legitimate enemy. Uh, one of them uh, was an old woman uh, who lived beneath us uh, in, uh, in a house we were renting in North Vancouver. Uh, we were there with Westside Church helping to, to plant the North Shore campus, and uh, we rented this house, beautiful house. We just thought this was the, the best rental house that we could have ever got. Uh, we knew there was a, a renter in the basement, but from the very first day that we moved in, she made it very clear that she was not happy to have us, not happy to have our, our young family of four living above her, uh, which may be uh, easy to understand, but we really tried to do whatever we could to make things better. I mean, we could tell that she was not happy about this, so we tried to engage her in conversation, get to know her a bit, tried to be very sensitive to the times when we were bothering her, tried to keep things quiet, tried to be accommodating. We brought her gifts. We tried to check in. We, we were super nice. She was not nice at all. In fact, she was mean. She was vindictive. Uh, she organized an email campaign against us with the neighbors. She wrote letters to our landlord, lying about things that we had damaged on the property. She vandalized our car. She was, she was angry all the time at us. And my response, uh, uh, the thing that naturally welled up within me was, was anger, for one thing, uh, but also fear. Fear because we'd already lost one rental house on the North Shore. It was difficult to find a good rental place. And we really thought that she was going to get us kicked out again. And we have to move and all, all that hassle. See, fear is, is the natural response. When there's hardship, when there's difficulty, it seems unavoidable. But what we see in our text is that actually fear can be neutralized. There is a way that we can engage in these situations without fear. So just to give you an illustration of, of, the, of how fear can be neutralized, this isn't a, a biblical uh, example, but this is an amazing example that I, that I learned of recently. Uh, I, was, uh, I heard this interview about this, this guy who had incredible fear of spiders. And I went to look at, there's a little mini documentary called A Cure for Fear. Uh, there's a doctor in uh, Amsterdam, his name, her name is Dr. Meryl Kint, and she has developed uh, a treatment for people who have intense phobias, intense fears. So this guy, Sam Ashner, uh, he, like I said, fear of spiders, incredible fear of spiders. He, I mean, every room that he walked into, he would, he would scan for spiders. He would have a, a legit panic attack if he would just see a spider of any size. There was one time when he found a spider in his car. He sold the car that day. He, he couldn't set foot in the car ever again. His, his life was ruled by this fear. So, so he flew to Amsterdam heard about this, um, this treatment, and here's how the treatment worked. The first thing that Dr. Kint would do is she would provoke the fear response. So here's a, here's a still from the uh, documentary. You can see Sam in the background. In that room, she has that white box and then a terrarium with a tarantula in the terrarium. And what she makes him do is go in the room, close the door, step into the white box. So he's even kind of closed in closer. She opens up the terrarium door, and then she sprayed the tarantula so it would run around the cage. And Sam, he was just completely freaking out, almost hyperventilating. I mean, it was, it was torturous to watch this poor guy. He was, he was wailing and screaming. His fear was up to here. That, that was the point, though. See, her theory is that as you experience this fear, your, your mind has to recall all of the past fears and then resave it as a memory. And so what she does after this like five minutes of torture, she brings him down into her office and she gives him a, a beta blocker, a drug. And the theory is that it disrupts the, the mind remembering all that fear again and neutralizes the fear. 
I got to tell you, I thought it was like mumbo jumbo. There's no way this guy was going to be not, he was so afraid of spiders. But the, the very next day, 24 hours later, he comes back to that same room and walks in. It was like night and day. His, his breathing was normal. His heart rate was normal. He was smiling. He was saying, this is so weird. I can see the spider, but I don't, I don't feel afraid. He stepped into the white box. He even went and he, he pet the tarantula. That, that's how much of a shift. Look, I don't know how it works. I don't know if it works on everything, but that, that fear was neutralized. Here's what I do know. I don't know anything about beta blockers. Okay, don't ask me about that. Here's what I know. I know that that same dramatic effect can take place in the life of a Christian when we know the gospel. Okay, the gospel can neutralize our, our deeper fears, not just spiders or snakes, but the deepest fears of our lives because of the gospel truths, the, the, the truths rooted in Christ himself that can change our view on things. And Peter points to some of these truths here in our text. For one, verse 14, he asks this question, amazing question. He says, who is there to harm you? Think about that question. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Peter, Peter wants clear the answer to be no one. Who is there to harm you, Christian, when you're suffering? No one. But, but I mean, if we look at church history, we know that there have been many people who have harmed Christians. There are people right now in the world who would gladly harm Christians because of their faith, because of the good that they are doing. Not just physically harm. You may have experienced instances of, of, of harm to your reputation, to your finances, work stability, uh, social standing, whatever it may be. There are many, many people who, who harm Christians. And so how do we reconcile that reality with this question that Peter's asking? And, and the answer is that we need to think more carefully about the nature of true harm. And, and we need to think more carefully about the protection that is offered by the gospel. So for that, let me direct you to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 28, where he says this, he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. See, the gospel opens our eyes to see so many wondrous truths, the love of God the care and protection of our heavenly father and the, and the reality, the true nature of our bodies and our lives. Okay, these, these are temporary things. This is a temporary reality while our permanent, heavenly, eternal home is being prepared for us by God. We are not to fear because we are in the protective hands of God. Now we can certainly experience pain and hardship and suffering, but our soul is eternally secure in Christ. This is the comfort that is meant to neutralize any fear that we might have. Now, maybe you think, look, that sounds, that sounds kind of spiritual, you know, just the hope of heaven, and so whatever's going on here now doesn't, doesn't really hurt us anymore. That, that, that's, that's not exactly what it's being said. Certainly, the hope of heaven is something that we can look to, and, and the pain is real. But the perspective that this gives us does bring comfort can actually neutralize the fear that is welling up within us. This, I don't know if you've experienced this, but practically speaking for myself, there are many times 
in specific situations or just where I've begin, begun to feel afraid. Uh, maybe it is something you know, specific like I was describing in North Van, but it could just be a sense of fear for the future. Right? As parents, we often fear what, what's going to happen with our kids. There's all sorts of things that we begin to worry about. And in those situations, uh, what, I've, what I've begun to do recently is to think to myself, okay, what is, what is the worst that could happen? Like, what is Satan conspiring to do? What could the world be conspiring to do against me? My health, f- physical pain, financial ruin, whatever kind of loss. And I think to myself, whatever that is, that's going to be temporary. It's not going to last. Seven years, 60 years is nothing in compared with eternity. The Bible says that here and now we are, we are experiencing light and momentary afflictions. It can say that because of the eternal weight of glory that is, that is coming. That gospel perspective shapes the way that then I see the things that might happen or the things that are happening. The other gospel truth, the love of God, means that every, everything in my life is going to be used for my good. The loving, sovereign hand of God. And then I think of all that I have in the gospel. The assurance, the love, the power of God, the spirit of God within me. And then I think of all the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all the ages that have gone before me, that have endured incredible suffering in this life without fear, without wavering. Because they knew that the road of faith, no matter how difficult, no matter how worrisome, was a road of certain blessing. And that's the other thing we see in our text. So Peter says in verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. What does he mean by that? He means that there is the blessing to come of heaven, but even in the midst of it, that we will be drawn near to Christ. That in the challenge, in the difficulty, our faith will grow. All of the things that are of real value, of lasting value, will increase in our lives in the midst of our suffering. So Peter says, you don't need to fear. And that's really, I think, the question that we should be asking in light of this, these first couple of verses. Are there things in our life that we are afraid of? And because of those things, we've been hesitant to follow the leading of God. Maybe we've been reluctant to do certain good in our life, to respond in certain ways of faith because we've, We've been worried about what might happen. If that's the case, can I encourage you to spend some time thinking about what it means that your soul is safely in the hands of God and that no lasting harm can come to you. See, Peter is saying, you need not worry. You need not fear. Even when suffering comes, every road that God leads us down will lead to greater and greater blessing, greater intimacy with him. And for the Christian, eternity is always on the horizon. So any any harm that comes to us will be short-lived and we can endure it by the power of God. So first, first practical thing that Peter gives us, first way to respond, do not fear, do not worry. Secondly, though he says this, be ready to make a defense. This one's interesting. Be ready to make a defense. Here's verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this verse is the origin of something we call Christian apologetics. 
We get that from the word defense in the Greek is apologia. Uh, it does not mean that as Christians we're, we're apologizing for our faith. It means that we are giving an explanation for what we believe. Uh, Christian apologetics has grown into this, this massive uh, kind of thing, right? This discipline where every aspect of the faith, people writing books, uh, developing arguments is a really good thing. It's really helpful, important for us to be able to articulate uh, why we believe what we believe, to be able to have good answers for why we believe in creation and why we trust the Bible. In fact, we've, uh, we've had books on our reading list, uh, apologetic books, because we want to be equipped as a church to be able to respond when people have questions. That's all well and good. Uh, but I think it's helpful that we realize here, in light of these verses, um, the context itself is actually much narrower than all of that. I mean, it leads to all of that. But where it begins, if you look at the context, is, is suffering. We don't often associate apologetic arguments and, and debate with, with suffering, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think here, the, the call here is for us to expect to suffer for doing good. Right? People are harming us, it's difficult, and yet we're, we're responding in kind, with kindness and grace. Uh, if we're actually living that way, we shouldn't be surprised that at some point, someone in our life asks us why we're doing that. Like our neighbor or someone in our family says, why, like, why aren't you angrier right now? You should be angry. Why, why, aren't, why aren't you trying to get back at that person? Why are you being so forgiving? Because they see the way that we're responding, and it's not the way that most people respond. And so what it causes them to ask questions, which gives us the opportunity to say, well, let me explain to you how I see the world. Let me explain to you why I would, I would, I would show grace. It gives us an opportunity to get to the gospel, which is really the whole point here. So Peter is saying, he, he's, he says, um, we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Now, he doesn't mean there just kind of some general expression of our faith. You know, he's not saying if someone asks you, you know, what is it that you believe? He's not hoping that then we will respond with some generalities. Well, you know, I just, man, I really feel encouraged uh, when I go to church. Or I really just feel comforted when I read my Bible, or when I pray. You know, I just real, have a real sense of purpose when I'm following God. That, that's all true, and that's all good, but, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. He wants us to be prepared to give specific reasons for the hope that we have in Christ. Specific reasons. There's a big difference. Let, let me give you an illustration. And uh, I'll warn you, this is the first of what will probably be many hospital illustrations, Kate. I'm sorry, it's, just on my, it's been on my mind, so prepare yourself. Uh, I, I went to the hospital over Christmas, uh, January 29th, um, because I had intense abdominal pain. We were up at Como Lake, it was frozen, we were playing hockey, it was great, and I started to feel this sharp pain. By the time I got home, it was very sharp. I was on the floor just in agony. My, you know, it felt like everything was tearing apart inside me. Uh, after a couple of hours, realized we, we, it's not getting better. We have to go to the emergency. So when I went to the emergency, I was, I was looking for help. Now imagine if the doctor, after you know, coming to see me, if he said to me, uh, Matt, look, here's, here's what I can tell you. The medical system has helped a lot of people, okay? So I just want you to know that you are in good hands and that there's a lot of great treatments and most people feel way better after having been engaged in the medical system. I'm a doctor. I love being a doctor. I just want to encourage you, trust the medical system. I would say, Doc, 
I do. I Really, I do. I trust the medical system. This is great. But I'm actually looking for a specific answer to the pain that's in my gut. That's, that's really what I'm looking to the medical system for. Could you help me with that? And of course, that's what they did do, right? I came in, they did a CT scan, found gallstones, found my pancreas was all in a mess. They gave me morphine, praise Jesus for morphine. Uh, They gave me some antibiotics just in case. And they said, look, you need gallbladder surgery. All of those were specific treatments, specific answers to the issue that I had. That's what I was, that was most helpful. What Peter is saying here, when he says, be ready to make a defense, give a reason for the hope that is in you, he means... You need to be able to explain specifically what God has done to bring hope into the world. And there's only one answer for that. One clear answer. Paul gives it in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have now fallen asleep, died. That's the reason. That, that is the hope. It's rooted in Jesus. And not just a general sense of Jesus as a great teacher. It's rooted in the specific historical events of the gospel. Because they, they actually tell us what God did to bring us hope. Jesus, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth in human form, lived the perfect life that we could not live to earn the righteousness that we need, and then went to the cross, though we didn't deserve it, died in our place to take the condemnation of our sin upon himself, then rose from the dead, making it clear that there is an answer to the the problem of death, all of that then applied to us through faith. This is the hope of Christianity. This is what Peter is saying. We need to be able to explain this to people. When they ask why we're we're living the way that we're living, why we're willing to endure suffering. So that's a good question to ask yourself. Could I explain that? Could Could I help people to understand what it is that Jesus did, who he actually is, and what it means that he came and died and rose again? Could I explain that? you know, briefly in a couple minutes if someone were to actually ask me that question. Another way to think of it is, is this. When someone asks you about your faith, do you tend to talk a lot about yourself and about your experience? Or, or do you talk a lot about Jesus? It's not bad, of course, to, I mean, you need to explain how it's impacted you. But if you never get to Jesus, then you're not really giving an explanation, a reason for the hope that you have. He is, he is the reason. So the what, in terms of our defense, is very important. But notice Peter also talks about the how. The how is, is equally important. Uh, he says, do this with gentleness and with respect. This is important uh, because there are those in the church that think giving a defense for our hope means having very heated arguments, very acrimonious debates with the people in our lives. Uh, There's some people who think that what it means is to really get into everything that we think is wrong with the world and how everything's falling apart. Politics, public policy, sexual ethics, everything, right? Now listen, it's not that we shouldn't have opinions or convictions about that, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. Okay? It's very unlikely that our strong political opinions are going to lead someone to the hope that is in Jesus. It's going to be tough. 
Also, Peter's very clear that the way that we are to talk with people is, is not to be in a heated way, in a very abrasive, aggressive way. He says we are to have gentleness and respect, which is hard, frankly. Uh, you know it's hard, especially if you're in what is, what is becoming a heated argument, especially with someone who is incredibly foolish, perhaps, or someone who's attacking you or belittling you, and you, you, you kind of want to defend, of course. Or maybe you have the perfect answer to someone who's articulating some, you know, argument about how the universe created itself and you just want to crush them and be like, that's illogical and you want to kind of have at it. There's a sense in which we very often, well, we always like to prove what's right or that we're right. But here's the, here's the question we need to be asking ourselves. What is our goal in these interactions? Like, are we, are we trying to defend ourselves? Are we trying to prove our superior way of thinking or reasoning? Are we trying to just, you know, knock someone down to size? Or are we, are we actually trying to help someone to see the hope of the gospel? Because if that's our goal, then uh, it's going to affect our approach. It's going to affect um, what we say and, and how we say it. Uh, if you were at our evangelism training nights, uh, we had them over the fall and then uh, in January, uh, this was really clear because uh, the first two sessions, the first two nights, if you came, were not at all actually about how to explain the gospel. Uh, it's not that they were shying away from that. It's just that the focus for the first two sessions were on how to be a good listener and, and how, to, how to ask good questions. And the reason for that was, was, again, not that we're shy about saying what we believe, but before we start to say what we believe, it's really important we know who we're talking to. We know where they're coming from. We know if, if, if there are hurts in their life, if there's bad experiences maybe with the church or if just what, what they actually believe. It's, it's so important that we know the person and we kind of can listen to them before we begin to articulate what it is that, that we believe. This is part of the reason that the Apostle Paul was such a great apologist and evangelist was because, because even though he was, he was argumentative, he was fiery, if you, if you read him, but he also was always very clear about who he was speaking to. Whether it was Jew, Greek, Roman, uh, he, he knew their worldview, he knew where they, were, where they were coming from, and so he was able to articulate what it is that he believed in a way that they could understand, in a way that would connect with the things that they cared about uh, in their own worldview. And most important of all, the Apostle Paul, for all his, his strength of, of debate, he, he really cared for people. He really loved people. Uh, we see this in, in a few different places in his writings, but there's one part in Romans where he's speaking about the Jewish people. Now, now Paul is Jewish, and uh, he came to faith. When Jesus appeared, he realized Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. And so his, his mission, in terms of what he was trying to do, was to reach the Jewish people. He wanted to convince them of the truth that the Messiah they've been waiting for is, was here, Jesus. That, that's who it was. And so he spent a lot of time reasoning and arguing. But I want you to listen to his response to those people who rejected all of his arguments, who just didn't want anything to do with it. L listen to what he says in Romans 9, verse 1 to 3. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish 
that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See what he's saying there? He's saying, if I could, I would switch places with them. He's saying, my, my kinsmen, my, my Jewish you know, brothers and, and sisters, I, I, my greatest hope is that they would see the truth. I'm sorrowful. His heart is broken because he sees them lost in their sin. They just can't see the truth of Christ. And he says, if I could, I would rather be accursed. I would rather be condemned than they could have faith. That's an apologetic heart. That, that's someone who's really going to reach the people around him. That's the kind of heart we need to cultivate. It's a heart that naturally speaks with gentleness and respect to the people around us, full of love, full of empathy, even, even towards those people who are attacking us, who are belittling us, who are making our life more difficult. So here's, here's again a good, a good question, I think. When, when we discuss things like this, issues of faith and life, things that we disagree with people on, and we're disagreeing with them, do we care more about proving our point or about loving the person? Right, that's the big question. What, what is our goal? Because if our goal is to love the person, then our approach will be different. Even our expectations will be different. Instead of, instead of feeling like we have, to, we have to nail them right here, we'll be, we'll be comfortable just expressing certain aspects of what we believe. We'll be comfortable coming back to this conversation again and again over weeks or months or years. We won't get to the point where we're so heated that we offend each other and then don't want to talk to each other for a long time. We'll look to actually be in a relationship with the people who need to hear this hope, who are looking perhaps for answers, even want to confront us with what we believe. And yet really they, they need the Lord and don't realize it yet. So this is the second thing that Peter is saying. We need to be ready to make a defense. And by that, he means to really give an answer. To love people enough to give them a gracious, gentle answer that points them to the truth of the gospel. And to do it in a compelling way. That's the second thing. Third thing. Third thing we are to do, last thing, when we're suffering for doing good, is to have a good conscience. We need to have a good conscience. We see this in verse 16. Peter writes, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So I think we know in general what it means to have a good conscience. It means you're doing the right thing from a right heart. Uh, this is basically what Peter has been telling us throughout the entire letter. He's been saying, look, you need to have good conduct. The main reason for this is because it honors the Lord. In chapter one, he says, be holy as God is holy. That, that's the main reason that we should try to do what is right. But here we see another reason. We see another reason why we should have a good conscience. And that reason is that it exposes the sinful behavior of those around us. Peter's saying when we are kind and gracious and loving towards people who are reviling us, slandering us, then they are the ones who are put to shame meaning their deeds are revealed for what they truly are. Dark, evil, sinful, shameful. Now the point here is not to gloat, right? not to say how amazing we are and how horrible they are. That's not the point. The point is that showing grace and love and kindness and goodness in our suffering is an opportunity to help people to see their sin more clearly. 
for us who are people of the light to shine our light into the darkness of their lives so that they might see for the first time the, the wretchedness of their behavior, to actually see it for what it is. There's other parts in the New Testament where this dynamic is described. Here's, here's probably the clearest one. Here's Romans 12, verse, uh, beginning of verse 19. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that's an expression. Uh, that's an expression which means for the person who's doing the wrong, right? The enemy there, this is the dynamic we, uh, David taught about a couple weeks ago, right? When you have an enemy, you bless them. You show kindness to them. And in that process, you heap burning coals upon their head, meaning they feel the, the burning sensation, the weightiness of their own sin. That's the goal. That they, that they would realize that they're the ones who are being evil and, and horrible and wrong and they would see their actions for what they truly are. So Peter's saying, look, when you're suffering unjustly because of the evil actions of others, you actually have a unique opportunity to reach them with the gospel. Because the first step in understanding the gospel is to understand our sin. And for many people, they, they just don't see it. All of us. Before God opens you know, the eyes of our heart, we, we can do horrible things and not see it for what it truly is, not see the depth of our sin, not see the hopelessness of our sin, not see the need that we have for a savior. And yet this is an opportunity in interacting with these people in, in a kind, loving, gracious way for them, for it to be unavoidable, that they can see that they are the ones, there's, there's a darkness welling up within them. But this only works if our conscience is clear. If we step across the line and respond with the same kind of hateful, angry words or actions as them, then our light is gone and we're both in darkness. And then no one has helped. Nothing ever good happens when both people are in darkness and in sin and in evil. I was reminded um, of this kind of dynamic with light and darkness uh, because it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day last week, week before, can't remember. Uh, but there's a quote that, that sprung to my mind. This is a quote from a sermon uh, in 1963 called Strength to Love. And he writes this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate Violence multiplies violence and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. See, he knew what he was talking about. Not just because he had experienced violence and hate, but because he knew the gospel so well. So you remember what John said in John chapter three about human beings. Human beings, on our own, we love the darkness because our deeds are evil. We reject the light, we, we can't see it. But when Christ shines in our heart, he opens our eyes to see something that we were blind to. And then there's an opportunity for us as people of the light to shine that light into the dark world. And even when, or especially when the darkness is closing in around us, there's still an opportunity to make an impact, to, to reveal to people the truth of their own darkness and their need for the light. 
See, Martin Luther King Jr., he knew that very well. So did Peter. So did the other apostles. Men of faith who willingly suffered for righteousness, not simply with a mindset to endure. Notice the difference. It's not just that we have to get through the suffering. It's not just that we have to to grin and bear it and try to get through. It's not just that. It's that they see the suffering and injustice as an opportunity to impact others for the gospel. See, that's, that's what Peter's calling us to here. This is the opportunity we have when someone is treating us poorly to actually respond in such a way that they might, they might actually see their need for Christ. And this isn't just true in massive injustices like racial injustice or, or religious persecution. This is true in the smaller sufferings that plague our lives. I mean, there are always going to be people that make our lives more difficult even when we are trying to be kind, even we're trying to be gracious or generous. I mean, there are people like this perhaps in our family, in our workplace, in our friend group. The question is, how are we going to respond? Or perhaps, how have we been responding if you're, if you're in that situation right now? Have you been fearful or worried? Have you been argumentative, sharp-tongued, your conscience clear? See, it strikes me that if we really take this to heart, it may be that there are mean, abrasive people in our lives that we actually need to go and apologize to. Because even though they've been way worse than us, our conscience isn't clear. And, and we need to admit wrong. And we need to do that with the understanding that there's opportunity in that. That there's power in that. For us to come and humble ourselves for someone who's, who's inflicting injustice upon us and just saying, look, I, I need to apologize. What I said, the way I did it, it was wrong. Can you forgive me? Man, God can do amazing things when there are Christians who are willing to, to treat others that way, who are willing to endure that kind of suffering and still, and still do good and still seek to honor the Lord. So this is the call. This is the hope that not only would we endure the suffering, but that others around us would be impacted by, by our response. And that the spirit of God would open people's eyes, people of darkness to see the light as God has already done with us. And that we would have the joy of being a part of it. So I'm gonna pray that for us as we close. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult call. To, to, to be a people who are willing to endure suffering for doing good and then even seek to, to try to bless and to try to continue to do good to the people who are making our lives more difficult, Lord, that's, that's a hard thing. And so I pray, please, that your spirit would give us the clarity of, of mind and heart to see the gospel clearly in our lives, to see the, the depth of the, of the gifts you've given us, to see the depth of your love, see the promises that are true and to see the hope of heaven beyond the challenges of this life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to respond in the way that Christ did, to, to pray for those who persecuted him, to think most of all about the hearts of those around us and how they are lost in sin and how much they need you. Help us, Lord. Help us to be those kind of people. And Lord, I pray that in this you would be glorified and many people be helped. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.